Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley. Is available. At the tone, please record your message. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context, and we have got a new Ask Dr. E for you. So how you doing, Dr. E? Well, to, uh, to be honest and candid, yeah, yeah. well, I had to do a lot of homework on a couple of these questions. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's good for you. <laughs> well, I'm not bored, that's for sure. <laughs> no, we had some interesting questions we'll hopefully dig into and maybe give some folks some answers. But yeah, doing great. Well, let's jump in. We have four questions today. Only one is a voicemail. Man, if you have a Michael Easley in Context question... We would just love it if you would call and leave a voicemail because it's so fun to use your voice. And now I know sometimes people will call and say, don't use my voice. <laughs> so just send us an email. If, if you, you put like a true... hanky over the phone. Dog, what I have, right? <laughs> yeah, use a voice changer app. <laughs> uh, no, but we love playing y'all's messages, but we'll still take an email. So this first one is an email from HW. And he says he's having a hard time understanding how Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10 go together. So now hang on. You you conclude HW is a male? Yeah, I do. Interesting. You think it's a woman. Well, I read it as a woman's question. Okay. That is fascinating. Okay. Well, Perspective. Yeah. All right. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Dad, read that for us really quickly. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so our male or female HW, you know, (laughs) breaks this down and says, this is amazing, we're saved by grace, we can't boast based on our works, we can have peace with God and rest in the confidence of our salvation. That's a crucial difference between our faith in Christ alone and every other religion's burden on human beings to try to keep working hard enough to please a perfect God. But then 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10, and now this is a slightly longer passage, but I still want you to read the whole thing for us. So this is 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10 in the NASB, of course. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have this as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So H.W. says, you know, this states that our works will be revealed when we stand before the judgment seat, specifically what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. If we are to, quote unquote, receive what is due, that's a daunting thought, knowing how human we believers still are, knowing how of the flesh we still are. And H.W. goes on to say, even Paul himself in Romans 7 says that he does things that he doesn't want to do and fails to do the things he should do, and that Jesus is the only one who can deliver us from this struggle. As believers, if our sins are as far as the east is from the west, then is it only our good works that will be revealed at the judgment seat? In our human minds, even that sounds like it could be a bit of competition. If we strive here to do enough good for Jesus to make a positive showing at the judgment seat. Dr. E. Well, you got to continue. He, he or she writes, how can the peace that passes all understanding, Philippians 4, mm. 7, 
guard our hearts and minds, and how can we rest in the good news of what Jesus has done when we know that the judgment seat is coming and we still live in the Romans 7 tension of being human. And then H.W. says, thank you for your help. That's a statement of faith right there (laughs) (laughs) that we can help. Uh, First of all, our broadcast is called In Context for a Reason. So we want to consider these passages in context that H.W. has cited. Now, the challenge we have here on the one hand is what do they mean in their setting? And then when we do these comparisons, we're, we're doing theology in a way. Right. But we want to be careful we're not doing piecemeal theology or cherry-picking verses. And I, I'm not saying that to be critical of HW. I'm just saying any of us, when we come to something like this, we're, that sounds like this when we kind of run around a bit. I want to start, first of all, by adding Ephesians 2.10 uh, to the quotation. Mm-hmm. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So let's try to tie up Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, and what it means. We're saved by grace. Not to be too technical, but the means by which we're saved, or the way we appropriate salvation, is grace through faith, not works. So Paul's saying, your salvation is not of works, but faith, Mm -hmm. the gracious work of God. So if we keep that train of thought in verse 10, he's saying we're prepared for beforehand for these good works. So I think there's a really important connection. We don't work to obtain salvation. We are God's work created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A little bit long, but we don't work to be saved. We're God's workmanship. Jesus made us for good works, and those works were made before we were ever called to salvation. So it's an interesting thing he's doing. We, we think of this passage primarily as salvation. That's where most yeah. of us come to it. But as our dear friend Ralph Whites often says, Ephesians 2.10 is the most ignored bo- verse in the Bible. Right. <laughs> because there are good works we're supposed to do. Now, I find it striking, and this is where my mind can go into a rabbit hole of study, but when Paul says, which God prepared beforehand, mm-hmm. in the book of Ephesians, that term is used in Ephesians 1.4 just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Mm -hmm. So he's already established in 1-4. He called us before we were made. Uh But we can't work our way to God. God worked his way to us. The work he accomplished in Christ, we are now to do. So it's a pretty interesting uh, concept that these good works are an outflow. Larry Moyer said, once we come to Christ, our life should be a thank you back to Jesus. Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not about doing good works to be saved or or as we're going to look at in a minute for reward or merit, mm-hmm. but this is a thank you back to God mm-hmm. that I would do the things he wants me to do. So, let's tie together then 2 Corinthians 5 verses 6 and 10, and we've already read it, so I won't read it again other than the phrase to be pleasing to him. And that passage really has to do with the fear of dying. Mm-hmm. And that I don't want to die. And he, Paul says that I'd rather be absent from the body at home with the Lord. Yep. Uh, but if we're here, we want to be pleasing to him. And that's where the judgment seat of Christ comes into play. So let's zero in on the question then about the judgment seat. Recompense for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. So to live by faith, not sight, verse 7, Paul says his apostolic ministry was 
a work. He was working to please him. So I think that means all believers are going to appear before the judgment seat. That's what the text says. Our deeds are going to be evaluated as good or bad. Now that latter word, bad, uh, is really more low grade or substandard. It's not like bad, wicked. Like evil. Right. And if you tie back to this, the beginning of this passage, it makes a lot of sense. We'll look at it in just a moment. But the judgment seat of Christ is not about salvation. Let's mm-hmm. be clear about that. Mm-hmm. There are seven judgments in the New Testament. This one is the judgment seat of Christ where our works are being judged, not us. Mm-hmm. All right, that's very important, especially depending on you know how we understood salvation when we came to Christ. Put it this way, if we did not earn or do good works to be saved, how could we lose what we didn't attain? Mm-hmm. That's a big question, Hannah, for people that don't know, really, are they saved? Right. He lived, he died, he was buried. He came back from the dead. We're trusting in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. Yep. If you bolt on Ephesians 2.10, you have to do these good works to be saved. You've missed the whole point of his argument. Yep. These works that you can't do, he did. But you're to live in those good works going forward. Now, in 1 Corinthians 3, I want to go back to tie up this judgment seat. Paul writes in verse 13, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed by fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, so as through fire. A fascinating passage. This day refers to this judgment day that he's talking about in 2 Corinthians, the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment of our works, not our lives. Now, look at this carefully. He uses different building materials, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, in descending quality. Hmm. You put those in a fire, Mm -hmm. the gold, silver, precious stones will come out of the fire. Wood's going to burn, hay and straw are going to be burned away very quickly. So he's saying there is, and back to that word, uh, they're low quality. Mm -hmm. They're substandard works. So the judgment by fire determines the quality, very important, not the quantity of our works. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Stanley Toussaint, with the Lord now, uh, used to preach a major, wonderful sermon on this passage, and he'd use a lot of you know, arm waving, and he'd talk about this giant pile of works, and the judgment fire of God hits it, and all that's left is little Brock. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that's what we worry about, right? Yeah. Um, but the judgment is determining the quality of the works, not the quality of the man or woman. Yeah. This is so important. Yeah. Now, we don't know what that looks like as far as the aftermath of the fire. Sure. We don't, there's speculation through other passages we won't look at, but maybe these works and whatever remains, we give back to Jesus. Yeah. Because what are you going to do with your work remnant that remained after the fire, the testing fire of God. You're going to wear it as a badge, as right. a crown? Of course right. not. You know, so there's some there's some guesstimations that we're going to give it back to Christ. Um, but be that as it may, now H.W. injects Romans 7, and he or she is exactly right. Romans 7 is a fascinating chapter. Scholars disagree. They line up on two views of this. Either this is Paul before he came to Christ huh. or Paul's struggle as a Christian, and you can see why it would be appealing to say, well, uh, to say those things in Romans 7, I mean, you must not be saved. Hmm. Well, I think they missed 
Romans 6, 7, and 8 as a unit. Romans 6 exhorts us not to misunderstand grace. Hmm. Uh, shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. Romans 7 explains the constant struggle in sin. And Romans 8 says, God justified us. It's a beautiful package. Mm. So in chapter 7, H.W. is right. I think, candidly, we're all prone to sin. The law reminds us of that. So we've got this conflict in our flesh and our new nature, and that's going to go on as long as we live. And Paul has the struggle. I love verse 24. Who will set me free from this body of death? You can just hear him agonizing. Mm -hmm. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But, on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And then Romans 8.1 is the remarkable, wonderful, explosive proclamation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those mm. who are in Christ Jesus. Mm. So, if we keep this unit together, we're not to live in sin, mm-hmm. knowing that God has this matchless grace. We're going to struggle with sin. But thank God there's no condemnation. Mm -hmm. Don't live in sin thinking you're going to get more and more grace. We're going to struggle with sin, but there's no condemnation. Mm -hmm. Then H.W. appeals to Psalm 103.12, and I love this psalm so much. We're told as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. So what H.W. is thinking is if sins are forgiven, Yet we're judged and we live with this tension. There's a lot going on in this question. I think it was Warren Wiersbe that said, when God forgives you, he throws your sins into the deepest part of the ocean and then puts a sign that says no fishing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I think what most Christians miss is, interestingly, this phrase, he forgives us not because he's a good and kind God merely. He forgives us for his namesake. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a very compelling passage in yeah. Psalm 25, 79, and other times Isaiah mentions this. So in a sense, God's reputation is pinned to the fact that he forgives his own people mm-hmm. for his name's sake. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, he or she appeals to Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And this is an area that, you know, we, and I include myself when I say we, I really, truly do, we miss some of the most obvious parts of the Bible. The verse begins with, be anxious for nothing. Why? Mm. Because we're all anxious about different Everything. things at different times. Yeah. yeah, I saw some uh, uh, young woman's feed on Instagram the other day, and she had a picture of this agonizing, you know, clip art of this woman that's agonizing, and she goes, I'm anxious all the time. Yeah. And I, you know, a lot of people live with anxiety. Yeah. And your, your stomach is a knot all the time. Anxious, this is a terrible way to live. You know, the Bible is completely up-to-date, relevant, eternal. Be anxious for nothing because he knows we're anxious about mm-hmm. things. Now, the Bible just doesn't say stop sinning. Right. The Bible always gives us things to repent or to turn to or to change or to do instead of. Uh-huh. Um, we had a friend in, in Grand Prairie, Texas that was a neighbor friend of ours and worked at the church. And his line was, why pray when you can worry? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot easier to worry than it is to stop and pray. Right. Well, the injunction is don't be anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, and we miss this, with, with thanksgiving. thanksgiving. Yeah. So you, you have to take a little stock and trade here. 
what am I thanking God for? Mm-hmm. I, I, my marriage, my wife, my children, my job, the fact that I woke up in a comfortable bed. I have a air conditioning in the summer, heat in the winter. I've got food to eat. I've got mm-hmm. friendships. I can come and go. Jesus forgives me. I shouldn't have guilt. I mean, we could go on and on this list. Whatever is causing us anxiety, the antidote of that is if I'm worried, trust. If I'm afraid, be not afraid, rest in him. If I'm, you know, worried about my money, obviously we need to work and be good stewards, but trust that God's going to help us along the way. And he says this will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So I don't want to sound trite or, you know, read your Bible and pray more, but I do want to say to all of us, read your Bible and pray more <laughs> because in, in, in the word and in prayer's life, we spend so, do you wake up with your mind running? Oh yeah. If the alarm goes off or if I have to get in the middle of the night, 2 o'clock, my mind just goes 100 miles an hour. Yep. And I go, and it's not necessarily anxiety, but it's all the things that I want to do, I yep. need to do, I look forward to doing. And I have to sit there and lay and say, easily, you got to rest. And even if you just lay here for a while, yep. don't jump up and start getting busy. And that's a great time to pray. Mm-hmm. It's a great time to reflect on yesterday and what's going on today and ask the Lord for help. Instead of, you know, why pray when you can worry, uh, you know, pray and set the worry aside. Yeah. Let your request be known to God. You know, the penitent sinner is a great image. They were always waking up every morning, the penitent sinner. Hmm. We all have regrets of yesterday. I wish I could have done something. I wish, you know, I was interviewing someone a while back and we were joking about repartee. Mm-hmm. repartee is what you think of the next morning in the shower right <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like spiritual like oh i wish i hadn't said that i should oh yeah. I, I had not used those words and i've been more kind or i should have said this when i had the chance to say something mm-hmm. or whatever you know our regrets may be the great thing is god forgives and he renews us every day we have that opportunity to start out on a new foot and let me encourage hw and anyone i think th- these are a lot of co-mingled questions but at the heart i think we're struggling because we're sinners we know somehow god's going to judge our works and yet i think hw you're all on the right track already be anxious for nothing uh, i think it's a great place to say lord i'm anxious about these things i don't know what this means can i rest in you and then be quiet read rest trust and I think over time, this is what I would call the spiritual disciplines. The more time I'm in God's word, asking for his spirit to help me and around God's people, I can be at rest. And I'll also add, the older you get, this ought to be an area of growth. Hmm. Um, I think in our 20s and 30s, we're, we're active, we're busy, we're reacting to everything with children and work and marriage. Yeah. And You know, when you have teenagers, your life is just a c- continual challenge. And then, you know, about the time you've seen enough battles in your family and your marriage and your finances, your health, you get a little older, you go, you know, God's been with us to this very day. Why are we so worried? And you start to learn. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any substitute for experience, even in the Christian life. You have to learn these things. And God wonderfully is a very patient teacher. So hope I got close HW, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of stuff in that question of yours, but, but I want to encourage you, if you're asking those questions and wrestling with that stuff, I think you're on the right track, brother. That's good. 
All right, our next question is from John, and I'm just going to read his question. I have been studying the different dispensations for a while now and seem to get caught up in Ephesians 1.10, where in the KJV, it renders the word dispensation, where in the NASB, it is administration. What is the correct rendering of this word, and does dispensationalism have a place for study and application here in 2020? Well, I want to I want to commend John. Kudos for you for reading that carefully. Ephesians 1.10 to me is a critical verse for so many issues. But yes, when we talk about dispensationalism or the administration, uh, the organization of God's timing. Now, let me say this, and I have a lot of friends that are that are very reformed. Uh, some of my very reformed friends really don't like that I am a dispensationalist. And I will tell people, I don't like the categorization of dispensationalism because the way it's caricatured. Mm-hmm. And I read some articles just to kind of brush up on what what are people saying about us today. And of course, I you know I read things went, that's not what I was taught. Let's say this: any form of theology, covenant, reformed, dispensational, use those three terms, is a presupposition of the way we look at the Bible. And even within covenant and reformed theology, there are very different takes on things. Okay. I am a dispensationalist because, as I understand it, it's a theological system Mm -hmm. of looking at the Bible through a biblical hermeneutic. Mm -hmm. Big words. Now, we talk about systematic theology, uh, process theology, um, biblical theology is where I like to land. I want the Bible to render my theology. Not Even though my friend Wayne Grudem, who I love dearly and I agree with him on many things, he wrote a systematic theology. And my word, if you could write one, he could do it. Right. Let's look up every reference of the word God and try to systematize it. Yeah. It's a massive job. So systematic approaches have their strengths and weaknesses. Biblical theology, not to sound arrogant or like it's the only way, I want the Bible to render the organization of theology, not a system. Now, let's talk about dispensationalism and the broadest stroke. There are seven, there are 11, there's all kinds of numbers. I look at the simplest law, grace, and kingdom. There was a time of law, mm-hmm. there's a time of grace, and there will be a time of kingdom. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the accusations about dispensationalists are there's different ways people got saved in different dispensations. Mm-hmm. And that is a mischaricature, at least the way I was taught. Mm-hmm. The way I was taught was uh, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as yeah, righteousness. His faith justified him. That's yeah. before the law. Right. That's, you know, the Abraham is chosen out of Ur of the Chaldees to be the father of the Jewish nation and to be a blessing to the world, all the ethnos. Yeah. So salvation was the same in Abram's time and Abraham's time as it is today. So this notion that we get saved differently, I think, is uh, not necessarily an adequate or accurate reflection Mm -hmm. of the way dispensationalism is taught. Some of the areas where I get hung up is I think the literal view of Scripture is more important sometimes than the allegorization. And again, depending on where people are on the Reformed Covenant spectrum, they may say, well, I don't agree with that, or I do agree with that. For example, I believe Israel and the church are distinct. Mm -hmm. So the promises God made to the Abrahamic covenant unilateral they're not going to be broken or changed are going to happen uh the rainbow is a unilateral covenant no more global flood yep so we have no egg we have the new covenant yep is unilateral every other covenant as far as i can remember is bilateral 
if yes. then. Right. If you do this, then I'll do that. Mosaic covenant, of course, that all those things were broken by people, but Abrahamic, uh, Noahic, the rainbow Abrahamic, and the new covenant cannot be broken. So when you look at these words, and it's easy to kind of run them together. I have friends in my past who say, well, you know, Israel doesn't matter because the church took the place of Israel. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand how they get there. I just think Romans 9, 10, and 11 argue very strongly that Israel still plays a part. Mm-hmm. I think Deuteronomy 30, you'd have to take it out of the Bible mm-hmm. if you think Israel doesn't matter. So there are a number of passages I'm, I'm teaching through this big book cover to cover. I'm struck how many times the land, the land, the land, yeah. all through the Old Testament, even yeah. the minor prophets is an important part of God's program. So I think there's a differentiation between those. Now, is Israel today Israel? Of course not. I don't know who Israel is today, but I still think it's part of God's program. And I'm not left to try to figure out, okay, they're true Israelites and they're not. That's right. not my job. Right. But I think the church is unique. It's not one. And then the the kingdom age, uh, I do believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the questions we're going to talk about in a minute is about the tribulation. But I do think there's a literal thousand-year reign where Christ comes down. Norman Geisler was one of my professors, and I remember we had a whole class on dispensationalism 100 years ago. And he gave this overview of each of the dispensations. And if memory serves, he held the seven, but I'm not positive. But he said, look at it this way. Um, He told Adam, which is called the Edemic Dispensation, uh, don't eat the fruit. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to do, just don't eat that one piece of fruit. And what did he do? He ate it. Right. So Adam's complaint to God would be, well, God, you didn't explain to me what was really going to happen Sure. if I did that. So God says, all right, all right, I'll give you another chance. Here's what. Here's the law. Here's a million. <laughs> well, it starts out manageable. It starts out 10, <laughs> 10. and a few, a few uh, uh, sure. other uh, qualifications on that. And they can't do it. And they go, well, wait a minute. You have to give somebody to teach us what these mean. Okay. Okay. I'll give you prophets. Yep. Okay. They came. Well, you don't listen to them. Yep. You kill them. Yep. Well, wait a minute. You didn't explain to us if we didn't follow the prophets, what was going to happen to us? Okay. I'll tell you what. I'll give you priests and I'll give you kingdoms and I'll give you all these things to help you understand that. And of course, what do they do? They keep violating, keep breaking. So man is continually arguing to God. You didn't explain the ramifications of this. So finally they say, you know what? You didn't come down here and show us what it means to live this Christian life. Okay. Incarnation of Jesus Christ. They kill him. Well, they say, now you didn't come and reign as a literal king because we thought you were going to be a literal king and reign the world. And Jesus says, well, you know what? That's part of my plan. Mm -hmm. And one day I'll be on that throne for a thousand years. And even then you won't believe crazy so i'm just saying it's, it's anecdotal that's not a very good way of explaining the dispensationalism it's anecdotal to say each of the objections man might have and that was geisler's illustration to why dispensationalism had some biblical weight mm-hmm. because you could look back on these things but to the idea that i don't think we're saved in different uh, t- different ways yeah i do think the old testament believer knew more about biblical theology than we give them credit for uh-huh. i think the pious jew perhaps knew more than the modern day Christian does about salvation Probably, and yes. forgiveness and sanctification. I, I truly, and I think they understood Messiah better uh-huh. even than, than we do sometimes. So I would fall in line with what's called classic dispensationalism with Charles Ryrie and, and Charlie Dyer and some of these people. All that to say, dispensationalism is a way of doing a hermeneutic. It's a way of looking at the Bible. Uh-huh. 
It's not what I'm going to live and die for as right. a dispensationalist. Another friend of mine says, you know, I'm reformed when it comes to soteriology, as am I. But I'm not reformed when it comes to eschatology, okay. which I agree. Yeah. So these categories, as attractive as they are, become cumbersome when you say you have to lock, stock, and barrel be yeah. a covenant, reformed, dispensational, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So a way to further study and understand the Bible, but not something that is like a tier one. You've got to figure this out for your personal salvation and relationship with Jesus. Is that fair? I think it's very fair. And and if you want to study it, Bible.org has a number of really good articles. And there, there's one by John Walvert that overviews. And then there's a little book. Uh, by Charles Ryber called Basic Theology. You could probably even just search online and find a chapter on what is dispensationalism. And that's not going to solve all your questions, but it will give you an idea, I think, a a more fair representation of what dispensationalism is and isn't. And again, Reformed theology and Covenant theology has some hard questions as well, uh, whether they're amillennial or, you know, they don't believe in a rapture, these type things. There's different nuanced parts of that. Some do, some don't. So it gets kind of gummy, but at the highest level, I would call myself a three-dispensation believer. Uh, there was a time of law, first law of Adam all the way through the law of Moses. There's the time of grace mm-hmm. when Jesus comes and introduces grace, and there's a time of kingdom. You're saved the same way, mm-hmm. but we're not governed in the same way. We're mm-hmm. not governed by the Old under Testament the law. Uh-huh. We're not governed under the time of grace the same way we will be in the kingdom, for example. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's a way of doing theology. All right, well, let's listen to our next voicemail. Hi, Dr. E. This is Valerie in Katy, Texas. And my question is, will the church be going through the tribulation? Okay, so is the church going to go through tribulation? I mentioned Bible.org in the last question. I'm going to refer to that again. I'm going to read part of an article that was uh, it's available free online, Bible.org. And if you just search that question, Will the church go through tribulation? You'll find it in about one second. And this was written and adapted by Dr. John Walvert. And he makes the observation that the church is the bride of Christ. And when we go back to Pentecost, where the church begins in Acts chapter 2, the fulfillment of the promise Jesus told them to wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you to give you power to be my witnesses. And that is the, the birth of the church. And again, we see that distinct from Israel and Israel's program, but the church is born and the church really is made up of Jewish believers. So if premillennials are right, then God resumes his program for Israel in preparation for this thousand-year reign. So it seems logical that during that time, the church is set apart in some way. Um, The doctrine of the tribulation itself raises some some difficult questions. Why would God take his church through a tribulation? So, and depending on different times of the rapture, different schemes of what promises we look at, if we look at John 14, where Jesus tells his disciples, I will come to you. Uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house or many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would tell you. He comes back to encourage them in that regard. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Believers are assured that they're your children of light, not of darkness. They're comforted with the promise that the day of wrath will not overtake them as a thief, like it will the world. In 1 Thess 5, 9, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So you continue to kind of add these up together. In Second in Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, Paul again writing to the Thessalonians, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end to the appearance of his coming. So that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception and the wickedness of those who perish, because they did not receive the love of truth as so to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they may be judged who did not believe in the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. And he goes on to talk about them being chosen, uh, just as Paul does in other times. So according to this passage, the one who now restrains sin in the world will be removed from the earth before this day of the Lord. And that includes the day of wrath. So there's a lot of discussion on who the restrainer is and, and what that means. But the point is, as Walbert suggests, the best answer is this is God's restraining hand and perhaps the Holy Spirit resisting the rising tide of sin in the world. So if his restraint is at work until that tribulation time, it would seem the church, of course, would not be involved in that. He writes, the Holy Spirit cannot be taken away while resident in the church and the world, as is now the case. The church and of course this is the body of Christ, is indwelt by the Spirit, is removed from the earth. The man of sin then is revealed. So that seems to be a pretty good argument. But not to get too burrowed and boring in the weeds here, but the short answer is I don't think the church goes through the tribulation. I think it is spared that, and only those who have not trusted Christ, and uh, we get the unpleasant news that uh, they will die as martyrs if they come to Christ during that period. So... That's all I got to say about that. So let me just get this straight. So you think timeline, rapture, tribulation, thousand-year reign. Paul writes in First Thess 5, As to times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them, notice them, not the church, not them us. suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others, but let us be alert, and that's the imminent return, be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of day, let us be sober, having put on 
the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet and hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. So that idea that the Christians go through the tribulation and experience that, he's not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, metaphor for death in the body, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another with these words and build up one another just also as you're doing. So again, it, it's complicated. Timelines and time schemes are endless, but essentially the uh, believers will be raptured. Um, those who are dead in Christ will be raptured. Oh, yeah. And there's a whole debate about body, soul, and spirit, and whether or not sure. there is even a soul, whether it's just body and spirit, and on and on we could go with bipart and tripartite man. But at the end of the day, uh, believers and his church, I think scripture is pretty clear, will not go through the wrath, will not go through the tribulation period. Well, we have had three heavy hitters of questions. So this next one seems like it's not, but it probably will be knowing you. <laughs> the... Well, this was the one that was the rabbit hole I had to study on. I was like, I don't want to read all this stuff. Oh. Goodness gracious. But I did. Well, I'm glad you did because the people want to know what you think. Yeah, so... well, yeah. maybe <laughs> some of them do. So Kelly wrote in and asked, should Christians practice yoga? Yoga's origin is Hindu pagan religion, yet many Christians practice it every day. Is yoga a form of pagan worship that should be avoided, or is it just personal preference? Is this comparable to Daniel refusing to be defiled when he avoided the king's meat, meat that had been used in pagan worship? Is it, quote, legalism to denounce yoga? Many churches offer yoga within their walls, and this practice continues to grow. And I'll add, there's like a whole thing called Christian yoga, redeemed yoga, holy yoga, all the stuff. Holy, There's really holy yoga? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. Are we <laughs> headed down a dangerous path? This is a can of worms. And when I first read this question, I thought, oh, that'll be easy. And then I started reading and went, oh, my word. Um, <laughs> so I read Al Mohler's piece in 2010. And uh, essentially, he says no. That's the bottom line. He says and don't do yoga. It, yeah. But what was what struck me, Hannah, was this thing blew up. And the Wall Street Journal actually picked up on it because it blew up the blogosphere. And there were so many people writing in. So on on. 2011, January 5, Wall Street Journal has a whole thing on should Christians practice yoga? So Kelly's right. It is certainly tied to paganism, and there's no doubt about it. Now, I'm going to use karate as an example. Uh -huh. Karate or karate is bound in Eastern mysticism. Uh -huh. uh, yoga is bound in all kinds of wonky stuff, and even some of these body positions apparently are giving homage to to the Hindu or Buddhism gods. I mean, the idea of sexual energy flowing through the position and so forth. And there's quite a lineup of uh, what I consider respectable Christian men and women who are completely against it. Now, all that said, and I'm on thin ice here, I think if you're a believer in Christ and you're doing this uh, for post-surgery recovery, you're yeah. doing stretching. Yeah. Uh, if you're in the lotus position, going home, probably not. <laughs> you know. But but if you're if you're stretching and doing, I have a friend who's had several back surgeries, and he works at Vanderbilt, and they have they call it yoga, but he says all we do is stretch. Right. We don't we don't say anything. We don't chant anything. Right. We just we have you know this is we're doing this and he goes I do it every day and my back pains are manageable. Totally. So you know if if you want to call yoga a if you go into it, it's a meat sacrifice to idols to me. Paul says, if 
that bothers your conscience. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. But if you don't, it doesn't bother you, eat the meat. You got freedom in Christ. Now, again, when you read some of the, you know, what this stuff means, it's like, well, can you be a, uh, worship the devil and be a Christian? Well, of course not. And some of the conclusions that these folks have on yoga are nearly demonic. And I would just say, you're a, a smart believer you have liberty and you have freedom in Christ. You don't use that liberty or freedom as a license. And if this is a mantra or it's some of the, if you read about Christians practicing yoga on Christian headlines, Al Mohler's article, uh, others like that, Salem Network's got some stuff on it, you will find out very quickly, I don't know if I want to be a part of this. Um, but that said, if you're doing it for stretching, for balance, for all those things, uh, managing stress, and you're not you know, worshiping, Hindu or Buddhism, uh, you're not into Hinduism or Buddhism. I think you're on a good, safe yoga mat. I realize that it's grounded in really crazy pagan, yes. you know, idol worship stuff. But I feel like there are a lot of things that we do in life that have also been captivated for different purposes. Like I think sex is a good example, though sex was created by God yep. and has specific um, parameters for, etc. Sex, of course, has been taken completely out of context in very evil you know, horrific things. So we can't say, well, don't have sex because, you know, there's all these. So and I know it's not the same, but. Well, I mean, that's why the meat sacrifice to idols to me is, is appropriate because that doesn't mean anything to us today. But if you were in Corinth or in a Roman area where there were all these different religious systems that sacrificed those goats and sheep and to, or whatever the animals to their pagan gods, and then you ate that meat, you were sinning. Yeah. And Paul says, you know, if that bothers you, don't do it. Right. But the strong brother, uh, I think, would apply here is the one that says, look, I'm not, I'm not eating meat sacrificed to idols because I worship idols. I'm eating meat because I want a lamb burger. Uh, you know, I think the same is true for yoga. And now, if you have doubt, and this is always a, a good line, you know, if your conscience bothers you, stop. Totally. Just stop. Yeah. And you don't have to analyze why or go around policing other people. Yeah. But, you know, if you have a friend and it's a good conversation about what, why we're doing this and can we guard, you know, uh, for example, alcohol, huge, huge debate always will be among Christians. Uh, the Christians believe you can drink as long as you don't get intoxicated. Those who think you're sinning if you drink. I appeal to the same passages. All things, you know, the food for stomach, stomach for food. It's, it's all liberty and it's all freedom, but you don't brandish that mm -hmm. you don't abuse it if you drink and you get a buzz you're intoxicated you're sinning you're out of control mm -hmm. and if you can have a glass of wine and do it in moderation i think that's okay that's an issue of freedom for you if it causes you trouble don't do it yep. don't make a big deal about yep. it but we we get in trouble when we police and if, if it's outright sin you mentioned sexuality of course if it's immorality and some of the things we see going on today of course we want to call our friends to repentance and Say, look, God loves you, and I'm not trying to beat you up or make you feel horrible, which, by the way, most people doing these things don't feel great. God loves you, and he has a better plan for you. Yeah. Um, but when we get into the weeds about yoga, and, and then where does it stop? Physical therapy and, uh, I mean, acupuncture, goodness gracious. Right. That open another can of worms. Totally. So. totally. But I, I think a strong Christian uh, has the liberty and freedom to make wise choices, knowing you're not worshiping Buddha. An immature Christian or a Christian who's growing might say, wow, I don't know if I should do this. Don't do it. Right. Don't do it. Right. Or pregnant Hannah has to do yoga seven days a week or she feels horrible. 
Do you go on? I don't. Stuff? No, no. I don't. I mean, it's it's stretching. You it's, listen to Christian music? We... No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually no like spiritual component to it at all. <laughs> I appreciate that. Oh, goodness. Well, if you have a question for Dr. E, please, please, please call us or email us. The phone number and the email address are in the notes below. We would love to hear from you and hopefully help you. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. Would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.